0: Hey, good morning and welcome to Church Online. So glad that you're joining us for week number two of our series based on the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. If you grab your Bibles, we are gonna be in Luke chapter five and we're gonna look at verses 12 through 16. And as you do that, I wanna remind you um, that all of the scriptures and uh, important information and big ideas are on our YouVersion Bible app page there. You can open the YouVersion Bible app Go to live events and look for North Park Church, and there you'll find all the scriptures we've used as well as all of the um, big ideas and some helpful resources that we would love for you to have. So go ahead, grab your Bible, and let's begin week two of the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry very recently uh, my wife Ashley and I had to go to the DMV to get our North Carolina driver's license. We moved here uh, very recently and a part of that process is getting a North Carolina driver's license and so uh, unfortunately you can't do everything online and so this required us to go in person and so it took several months just to get an appointment uh, but we, we thought maybe if we had an appointment we wouldn't really have to wait in line Well, when we got there, there was not just one line, but two huge lines. And going to the DMV is a lot like going to the Chick-fil-A, except there's no great food, and the customer service really isn't quite the same. In fact, the folks at the DMV have to run a pretty tight ship, so they don't say things like, my pleasure. In fact, they were telling us to move and where to go. Um, Sometimes I was afraid that maybe I accidentally signed up for uh, the Marine Corps and wasn't at the DMV. But there was one person who got treated really well. Uh, And that was my very pregnant wife, Ashley. Uh, Everybody else had to stand in line. Everybody else had to just take their ticket. Uh, But when Ashley came in, it was like, oh ma'am, and and here's here's a seat. And Ashley was like number 216, and they were on like 100. Well, the next number they called, they didn't even call a number. They just said, you, ma'am, why don't you come up here and, and we'll go ahead and take care of you." Now, there was only one person who got upset and said, this isn't fair, this isn't right. Why does she get to go? Why the rest of us had to wait, have to wait. And Ashley turned around and said, Chris, sit down and be quiet. And I did, okay. So I, I thought, man, you know what, this isn't fair, but maybe I, I could just say, hey, look, um, she's my wife. Maybe they'll let me in as well. One of the things that I've always said is, is that anytime Ashley's pregnant, I always say, look, she's pregnant, Not." we're pregnant or we are pregnant. It's just her. But this time, this time, I would have went with anything. I would have said, yes, we are both pregnant. We are pregnant together. That is my child. Why don't you let me go ahead as well? Well, it didn't work. Ashley was there in about 10 minutes. She was gone. But me, for the next several hours, I was alone and I was bored. And I began to think, do you remember the last time you were really bored? Um, I didn't bring a book with me and there really wasn't great cell service. And they made us kind of set separate still kind of following COVID protocol. So there was no one to talk to. There was really nothing to do except stare at a screen with numbers, praying they would call mine next. And I realized it had been a long time, a really long time since I was bored. The reason being is we always have our phones, right? We kind of escape into this boredom. And the author of this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says that phones are great, but we've lost something when we stopped being bored. And here's what he says. He says, the second we feel even a hint of boredom, we reach for our phones. He says, all of those little moments of boredom were actually potential moments for prayer. He's saying all those moments that now we fill with social media and our phone, we don't actually give ourselves and our, our time, uh, give ourselves time to just kind of be in a quiet place, like a place to really think. I mean, think about it. The first moment you get in your car, you turn on music or a podcast, or you're at home and the TV's on, or someone's talking. There. There's very few moments of silence, maybe when you're falling asleep, but even then, right? You've got a fan and a sound machine and, and you're trying to go to sleep. But how many moments in your day are you just quiet and still and really thinking? We don't like these things called silence and solitude. They, they kind of feel like punishment, right? But what we're going to see today in this passage is that those moments of silence and solitude actually help us to be more aware and more present. Present to what? Well, present to God, present to others, and present to everything that is still true and beautiful about the world that we live in. We are so distracted by our phones. Listen to this. The noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God, drowning out the input we need most. We can't hear input from who we need to hear input from the most because of all the external. And what we'll see in a moment, any internal noise that we constantly hear. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus that we can look at and say, I need this in my life. So let's look at Luke chapter five, verse 12 through 16. Now, very quickly, here's what you'll see. There's going to be someone who has leprosy and leprosy was a skin condition. Now, the Greek word has like 12 different diseases that could kind of fall under that umbrella of skin diseases. Some of them were not terrible. Others were life-threatening. You would lose limbs and and really die a very slow, painful death. Um, Most commentators believe the man we're gonna meet here is in the final stages of the most extreme type of leprosy. And so his life is is really without much hope. Um, Not only that, because he's a leper, he would have been a social outcast. He would not be able to participate uh, in, in many of the, the, the parts of, of the Jewish faith and their religious festivals and gathering together for prayer, um, he had to stay away. In fact, many people believed that being a leper, the, the skin, the outer disease was a reflection of an internal disease that because of sin inside of that person, this was just simply the manifestation of that sin. And so they were considered not so much to have a disease, but really to be unclean. And anyone who touched them, no matter how clean or holy they might be, would themselves become unclean. And so here's what happens. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered in leprosy, full on near the end stages. There is not much hope. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal him, but he doubts whether or not Jesus is willing to heal him. Because like we said, to touch this man, would make Jesus unclean himself or at least that's what he thought because when someone clean touched something unclean, they became unclean. But verse 13 says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus tells the man, go go to the priest, do exactly what you're supposed to do. And in the law, in the Old Testament, there was kind of an actual list of what to do and to present yourself. But here's what was really funny. It had been a really long time. In fact, for many of these priests, probably no one had ever come to to show that they had been cleansed or healed of leprosy. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's two really specific stories about somebody being healed. But it was such a rare thing. Many rabbis considered being healed of of this type of leprosy uh, as the same as really resurrecting someone from the dead. It was just absolutely unheard of. And so these religious leaders would have been absolutely shocked to find out. Now in a small community, they would have known exactly who this man was. There would have been no denying that he'd been healed. Um, But exactly what you think would happen, happened, right? Absolute pandemonium. Like people just began talking and everyone wanted to know what happened. And and, and scripture tells us um, in verse 15, the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear and be healed of their sicknesses. Jesus was trending, right? He was he was all over social media. Everyone was wanting to get to, to, to see him, to experience healing, to talk about him. He was he was really headed toward the height of his popularity. And verse 16 says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and praised and, and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Now, this would make sense if something bad was happening in Jesus's life, right? Maybe uh, the Pharisees had called him out on something, or maybe he was just kind of not feeling valued or loved. And so he pulled apart, you know, he got away because he didn't really feel like he was having that great of a day. But Jesus is at, is at the top of his, his popularity at this point. He has just done something so rare that news is spreading so fast and Jesus' first reaction is not actually toward the crowd but away from the crowd. Jesus doesn't actually look to really enjoy the popularity at that moment. In fact, he does the opposite and it says he goes to a lonely place to pray. Why? Well, Jesus and these lonely places or quiet places is very common in scripture. In fact, just in Luke alone, it mentions nine times that Jesus gets alone to a lonely place to pray. Now, in scripture, there's this word desert in the gospels, and it has various different meanings. So, the word used for desert, when it talks about Jesus being led by the Spirit into the desert um, when he was fasting and, and he was tempted by Satan, that word for desert can mean desert. It can also mean desolate place, solitary place, lonely place, quiet place, or wilderness. It's actually not a negative place. Uh, It's a place of silence and solitude. I mean, have you ever read the story about Jesus being led by the Spirit into the desert and then he faces Satan? But during that time, he is fasting and praying. And I always think, okay, why would Jesus have to face the greatest enemy when he's at his weakest, but he was actually very strong. He had actually been in this place. The wilderness isn't a place of weakness. It was actually a place of strength. It was a place where he was able to focus and prepare and pray and get away from all the noise and all the hype and all the acclaim and all the things that other people were saying about him. So he knew who his heavenly father said that he was, right? Because when the enemy comes to him, he begins to attack his identity. Another great story, the feeding of the 5,000, right? Uh, John chapter 6 tells us this story. And Jesus takes the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. And we drop down. It says, after he had fed them, he gathered them and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves um, that was left from those that had been eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, indeed, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now there's so much happening here in this text because what we see in this moment is the people, it's it's near Passover and these people are longing to be liberated. And so in the same way that we say, well, it was almost Christmas time, you would know people are listening to Christmas music and putting up decorations. Well, Passover was a huge festival to the Jewish people. It was a time when they remembered when God had delivered them from slavery. Well, these people believed they were being oppressed by the Roman government. And so they were hungry for this leader. And, and what happens in the whole Passover story, right? God's people are delivered. Uh, they're in the wilderness at one point. They get manna, they get bread. And so everything about this story is reminding us, the author wants us to see Jesus as a better Moses. He's going to provide bread in this desert place and and the people are looking for a leader and that's exactly what they see and they say this is the prophet like Moses told us about in Deuteronomy 18. He's going to be this great leader and the people are going to follow him to freedom. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus has 5,000 men. That's just the men. There's women and children but 5,000 men at that moment are wanting to make him king. He could have led some kind of like military guerrilla warfare. He could have gotten these guys together and went and really tried to take on Rome. But what does he do? Verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Another great moment, a moment of great popularity. Jesus had come to be king. They were trying to make him king. It sounds like a great plan, except it wasn't the way his heavenly father had intended. You see the culture, the world, the people, the noise was telling him, this is the path you're supposed to take. And yet in the greatest moments, the moments where you and I would be tempted to listen to the crowd or get caught up in the moment, the good moments, Jesus actually pulls away. You see, the priority of Jesus, or the priority of Jesus' solitude and silence in the Gospels is absolutely striking. Uh, It's how he began his ministry in silence and solitude. It's how he made important decisions he would withdraw. It's how he dealt with with emotions like grief after hearing about the death of John the Baptist. It's how he dealt with the constant demands of ministry. The busier he became, the more he would pull away. Um, It's how he prepared for important ministry events in his life. And it's even how he prepared for death on the cross. Whether a great moment or a really difficult moment, Jesus continues to pull away. In fact, he, here's the big idea that I really want you to hold on to. The busier and more in demand and famous Jesus became, the more he withdrew to a quiet place to pray. The busier he became, the more he would actually withdraw to a quiet, silent place. That is the exact opposite of what I do. For Jesus, the busier he was, his first go-to was to get to a silent place where he could think and pray. For me, the busier I am, that quiet place is the first thing to go, not the first go-to. It's the first thing I take off the list. It's the thing that I put off for later. I'm too busy. There's too much to be done. There's people to meet with. There's family that needs me. But for Jesus, we find in the Gospels that sometimes he would, if if he was too busy during the day, he would get up in the middle of the night or early in the morning because it was that important. So here's the question. If Jesus needed this time, a lot of it, don't you think you and I need that as well? And I'm not trying to lay this guilt, but this idea of silence and solitude is really a break from noise. And there's two kinds of noise. There's an external noise. There's the noise that we hear. There's the noise of people and music and podcasts and Netflix, that constant noise that we, we, we don't normally turn off, but we need to. We need a break from the noise, but that's an easy one, right? That's turning off a switch. That's turning off a TV. The harder noise is that internal noise. What is that internal noise? It's the mental chatter that just never shuts up, right? It's when you do turn off the music and you do turn off the show. It's when you do get away to a quiet place. It's that running commentary in your head that reminds you of your failures. It's the replaying of conversations you've had with people that didn't go well and and you wish you would have said something different. It's the worry about those things that you can't control. Here's one. It's just running through all these hypothetical situations. Well, if they say this, or if this happens, or if this goes on, then what am I going to do? That noise is very hard to turn off. In fact, it's the internal noise that causes us to turn up the external noise so loud. And what we have to do is follow the example of Jesus, and we need to wake up to the reality of God all around us. We need to draw our minds intentionally and our attention back to God, to be present to God, to be present for people, and to be present to the beauty and truth of this world. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, I can think of nothing great that is also easy. He mentions this in his book on prayer, but think about it. What in your life is great, or what have you accomplished that's great, or what has anyone accomplished that was great, that was easy? It's always hard. It's always a sacrifice. But, but that thing being so great is worth it. And here's the reality. Prayer or getting away or silence and solitude is not easy. And, and, and working at a church, we try so hard to make things convenient or easy or, or easy to understand. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is, if you really want to get to this quiet place, it's going to be hard. It's gonna be hard because we have trained our brains and our minds and our souls to be constantly in a hurry, to constantly have noise, to constantly have external and internal noise. And when you sit down this week, if you take this challenge to make time for silence and solitude, it will be difficult. But, But like Keller said, I can think of nothing great that is also easy. So how do we do this? I love this idea. And you've heard this, I'm sure, before. But the word worship originally and literally means to recognize someone or something of superior value. It's this idea of looking at something and understanding its true value. And getting alone in the quiet places helps us determine what is truly valuable. Think about Jesus. People wanted to make him king, he pulls away right? The people want to begin to celebrate what he's done. He pulls away. People are trying to tell him what his identity is. He pulls away and he reminds himself of the true value, of the value of the plan that his heavenly father has for him, to be reminded of his identity, of who he is. And so think about this for just a moment. Let's say that your grandmother left you some jewelry, all right? And because it's your grandma, you just kind of put it away in a drawer and didn't really think about it. But let's say that you have a friend who who works with jewelry and and they happen to be over and you open the drawer and they see that and they say, where has that been? Why why have you been hiding that? Let let me see, this is this really beautiful piece of jewelry. In fact, this is from the 17th century and, and this particular person who would craft this way, this is so rare. This has to be at least worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Something you've been keeping in the drawer next to the, the staplers and pens and batteries and, you know, the junk drawer, you come to find out is actually worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So what would happen? Here's what would happen. Your friend who, who's, who knows jewelry, they would begin to help you to admire this jewelry like you never had before. Uh, they would point out, the jeweler would point out the, the beauty that you had never seen. They would say, look at this, look at this stone. And here's what would happen. As they pointed out this beauty, you would begin, your mind would be filled with the value of this particular piece of jewelry. You would begin to admire it in a way that you never had before, right? Because before it was just in the drawer. You would begin to think how your life is going to be completely different. I mean, this thing's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. But then he tells you, if you, if you would get it repaired, if you would, you would get it cleaned, it would be worth even more. And so you begin to think about how your life is going to be different just because of this thing that you possess. It would you would begin to change your behavior toward it as well, right? You probably wouldn't put it in the junk drawer anymore, right? You would probably get a, a special cabinet or, or maybe even a safe and then you maybe would even handle it with gloves. You would find that your behavior toward this particular piece of jewelry would absolutely change. And the last thing is you would begin to invest in it. If you had a piece of jewelry that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and he said, listen, you need to go to Switzerland and there's one person on the planet who can, who can fix this thing and make it worth even more, but it's going to cost you $5,000. You wouldn't even hesitate to invest in that. Why? Because you know it's worth. It's something you've had all along but you needed someone to come along and stir your affections for it, to point out its beauty and value. And the more you think about it, the more you admire it, the more you notice these things, the more it changes your behavior. Here's what's happened. That jeweler has shown you the beauty of something that you possess. I love this this, this idea. There is a reality here in the midst of your life and mind, and we do not recognize it. And because we do not recognize the value of it, we're not living properly. You would change your behavior, you would change your outlook, you'd change your schedule. You would invest if you had a piece of jewelry that you did not realize its value. But the only way to know that is to get away with the jeweler and begin to see and understand what you have. Colossians talks about all the wisdom of the world and all this truth and all of this value in Jesus that he is not only smart, but he's the most brilliant person to ever live. And we have access to him. We have this incredible relationship, but because of all the noise, it's kind of something we kind of put in the junk drawer and it's there and we care and it's sentimental. But we don't really invest in it. It's not something that brings absolute value to our life. And and silence and solitude is when we get alone and the Holy Spirit begins to point out the beauty and the greatness of Christ. And we begin to admire Jesus and we begin to be drawn to Jesus and he begins to be the most valuable thing in our lives and it changes our behavior, it changes our focus, it changes everything. Jesus knew that. Jesus constantly pulled away to a quiet place, to a desert place, to a lonely place, not for punishment, but to refocus, to become more aware. And the same is true for you and I. So this week, I want to challenge you every day, even if it's just five minutes to get alone in a quiet place, no music, nothing else, just just five minutes of just thinking And be honest, it's hard. You'll probably fall asleep. You'll get distracted. You'll drive yourself crazy. In fact, when you first begin, you'll actually begin to kind of think of all these negative things. That commentary will kick in. But as you press in and the Holy Spirit begins to stir your affections for Jesus, you will begin to be amazed at the greatness and wonder of Jesus. And that five minutes of silence and solitude can be a real game changer for the rest of the day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for for just the absolute beauty of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would get alone and we would begin to see and wonder at your amazing beauty and glory. I pray, Lord, that if anyone watching does not know you and wants to make you Lord of their life, that, Lord, they would surrender to you, that they would just simply say, Jesus, take all that I have, be Lord of my life and and, and begin to follow you, O Lord Jesus. I thank you, Father, for uh, our North Park family and for those that watch us online. We just thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and have a great week.